Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, yes, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Thanks for being part of the show. And thank you so much, those of you who've done so much to help promote the show and encourage new listeners to the show. Uh, your work is very noticeable, and uh, I very much appreciate it. Now, uh, for today's show, I'm doing something that I do periodically. I don't do it very often at all, but uh, when I do, I do it with considerable trepidation, and uh, only when I get a response via email at our website, rabbidaniellappin.com, um, encouraging me do I get over my diffidence, and that is I am playing for you a speech that I delivered last Sunday in uh, New Beginnings Church in Dallas, Texas. And the reason I'm doing that is uh, because, first of all, uh, I sound a little bit different when I'm speaking to a live audience than when I'm preparing a podcast for you. And um, and I know many of you find that interesting. I find, I find it interesting sort of analyzing why uh, that is uh, that difference exists. And I think part of the reason, of course, is that a live audience uh, flings energy back at you. It's almost inevitable, and it, it's certainly, to me, it's palpable and, and, and very, very uh, real. So anyways... Uh, I'm hoping you're going to enjoy it. I'll tell you what uh, I deal with. I mean, again, I I will tell you, uh, and I know this isn't up everybody's street, so I'm going to give you the warning right now. Um, It is much more of a Bible-based discussion than I usually do uh, on this show. Uh, The sort of things that I deal with are, um, well, if you're a single guy and you really are interested in getting married, but you just haven't found the right girl, well, I have some really important information for you. Uh, or how's about uh, if you are uh, about to have a baby, or maybe maybe you're a grandparent, and uh, or maybe you're just somebody who gets asked this question. It's a pretty good question, which is, at what age... You know, when do you have to start educating a child? Like, uh, you know, when, is when your child starts speaking, is, is that the age to start educating your child? When I say educating, I mean, obviously, you know, you're reading to your child, you're, you're doing all of those kind of things, but essentially starting to teach your child a code of moral behavior, uh, basically exposing your child to uh, the rules and restraints of a culture, uh, letting your child hear the words, thou shalt not, if you like, in one form or another. Uh, what is the right age for that? If you ever wondered uh, about the answer to that, uh, I think you will be surprised because that's coming up in today's show. Um, how's about uh, uh, why God chose Abraham? What was that about? Uh, out of all the people, what was that choice made for? Uh, or even why in the summer of 1941 did Adolf Hitler and the Nazi war machine um, turn on Russia with whom they had a non-aggression treaty instead of doing the obvious thing, which was wipe out England? 
uh, that would have prevented America joining the war at the end of 1941 and uh, would have secured, well, it certainly wouldn't have been good for civilization. But uh, from Adolf Hitler's point of view, kind of hard to understand why he didn't do that. Well, I explained that as well. So all of that is uh, coming up in today's show. Do let me know if you enjoy it. And uh, the website again, rabbidaniellappin.com. That's the easiest way to get hold of me. Uh, obviously, I also see anything you put on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube uh, or any of the other places that the uh, the show does appear. And also, I should let you know that I am going to be appearing and speaking in Las Vegas in a few weeks' time. Uh, for those of you who'd be interested, uh, the date is October the 14th, and I'm gonna g- I'll give the year as well, because uh, the nice thing about these shows is that people do listen to them um, for a while. So if you're listening to this well after October the 14th, 2018, uh, my apologies. Uh, the next 30 seconds are not relevant to you, uh, but for everyone else, if you uh, have any interest in hearing me on October the 14th, Sunday, October 14th, 2018, at uh, Las Vegas, just go to the website wealthsummit.net, okay? I'll repeat it, wealthsummit.net, and uh, you'll be able to get a reservation and uh, be able to join me on October the 14th in Las Vegas. Look forward to seeing as many of you there as possible. And uh, finally, uh, one of the uh, complicating factors in my life over the last uh, week or two uh, has been the uh, schedule of Jewish holidays. We first of all had Rosh Hashanah, and that was followed by Yom Kippur, and uh, the holiday of Sukkot uh, begins um, on uh, Sunday night, September the 23rd. And uh, that means that the um, our our website has a store at it, of course, where the resources that I create for your entertainment and education and life enhancement, uh, the store is shut on those biblical festivals. So to just be aware of it, with my apologies, uh, you will be subjected to some inconvenience, I imagine. But uh, that is uh, what what's happening. It's also why... Um, I missed one week. I don't think, gosh, it's it's got to be a couple of years at least since this last happened. I just don't remember when last I missed uh, a week of the show, but I just did. So for those of you <laughs> who noticed that, you faithful and loyal listeners, deeply appreciated listeners, um, my apologies for that. Uh, the We're also in the last um, the last week of a discount on our uh, library packs. And you'll find that again if you go to rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, head over to the store, you will see the library packs are on a special price. But uh, that's on um, that's just for a little while longer. And uh, as I say, it's slightly complicated by the fact that the, uh, the store won't be open every day. But... Um, Again, my apologies for that, and I hope that you uh, persist and uh, are able to get to it. Okay, uh, with uh, that out of the way, why don't we jump right into uh, New Beginnings Church in Dallas, Texas, 
this last Sunday, uh, the church of my friends, uh, Pastor Larry and his wife, Pastor Tiz Huck, um, whom I've, I've known for quite a long time and, um, and whose friendship I cherish, uh, you'll hear uh, my, my very sincere sentiments I express about them and about the church. Uh, and then on we go for today's show. Thanks for being part of it. Uh, stay tuned, and I very much hope you enjoy this variation from the usual pattern of the show we do. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Here we go. I am so honored to be able to be with you. But right now, oh, we got it up. Right now, I'd like you to stand your, stay standing. And I, I say this, I said this Friday, that if I had one person that God said, you can only study under one person without a shadow of a doubt, I would pick Rabbi Lappin to be my teacher. Now, the only reason I hesitate in telling you that is that when you get his books, you'll find out that the wisdom by God did not come from God. It came from Rabbi. Because, <laughs> you know, as preachers, we go, you know, God just showed me something when in reality I got it from Rabbi. One of the greatest men of God and teachers of God's word in the world today. Would you give a great Dallas, Texas and around the world welcome to our Rabbi. Thank you, my brother. Thank you for being here. Amen. Thank you. Let me start with a prayer that I customarily say whenever I am about to share profound yet complicated words of Torah. I didn't write it. It was written by King David. And it's the last verse of the book of Psalm, excuse me, the last verse of Psalm 19. And the words are, Yehayu l'ratzon imrefi vehegyon libi, lefanecha Adonai tsuri vegoali. The prayer means, may the thoughts of my mind and the words of my mouth find favor before thee. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It is necessary for me to start off by telling you that my being here is enormously exciting. As soon as Pastor Larry and Pastor Tiz mentioned this to me several months ago, Susan and I rescheduled our flight to Israel to make absolutely sure that I would be able to be here. And let me make this clear. You don't have to thank me. That's not what I was getting at. I'm thanking you. Because being here together with you all is tremendously important to me in my life and tremendously important to me in everything for which I was created. I was trying to remember how many decades it is that uh, I have had the privilege as well as the pleasure of being a friend of Pastor Larry and Pastor Tiz. 
And it's, it turned out to be longer than I realized. It's more than two decades. And uh, we have retained a close connection. Those of you who are regular here, and I hope that's all of you, uh, know already of, of this very special relationship. And uh, I know that we are beaming out this program along with my message today. And so I have to be very careful to only tell the truth. Because the more people that hear you, the more chance there is of somebody catching you out. And knowing the huge audience that is watching on the stream, on the live stream, I knew that I have to be very, very careful. And it is with that care and that caution in my heart that I tell you that you are blessed with extraordinary leadership here. Pastor Larry and Pastor Tiz really stand alone in terms of their courage. And I've told you this before. You know, cowardice is contagious. That's why they shoot deserters in a war. You have to. Because fear and cowardice spreads through contact like the most virulent epidemic. Well, in exactly the same way that cowardice spreads through contact, so does courage. And so when we all have the privilege of being in this congregation and being in front of Pastor Larry and Pastor Tiz and being closely associated with them, that courage spreads. We become the beneficiaries of their courage. And so I say thank you to both of you for the fearlessness in your hearts and the courage that you give over to all of us. And uh, pastors Larry and Tiz, I also want to tell you something. You both stand alone in your vision, the clarity of your vision and your ability to heed the vision. And that's something that makes all the difference in the world. Do you remember on the screen just a few minutes ago, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, you saw it up there. God said to Abraham, move, get going. Not everybody hears that message. They do. Move away from your comfort zone and do what I want you to do. Most of us say, what was that? Did I hear something? Nah, don't think so. And lastly, this is just my personal observation over the years and something that I find myself sometimes embarrassed by and sometimes spurred to action by. My goodness, they're like the hardest working pastors in America. They don't stop for a minute. And that's inspiring. 
That's enormously inspiring. Now, this is the one-man conference, and that represents everything I told you. Courage, vision, and hard work. That's what this is all about. One man. Well, don't we all struggle to be one man or one woman? It's very difficult. There are so many parts to each of us. And it is so difficult to integrate them. Somebody recently told me that they're in marriage therapy. And I, I, I said, with whom? And they told me the name of somebody. And I said, look, I think you need to know that that person has a trail of not three, but four broken marriages behind him. And I just want you to be aware of that if that's where you're going for marriage therapy. And he said, well, he's got a very impressive diploma on the wall. Fine. Good luck to you. But, um, but surely there's a gap there. It's not a fully developed and integrated personality. It's the spiritual equivalent of a um, Tour de France bicycle racer I once saw. And they're not all like this, but this particular gentleman that I saw um, placed very, very high. He was a, a superb athlete on a bicycle. And I, I remember being struck by the fact that he had these sort of spindly little arms, which is probably all you need to hold onto the handlebars. And I mean, he has to have had a healthy set of lungs and a heart to drive his legs. But when you looked at his legs, his legs were like oak trees. And he was the funniest looking person because he had these enormous, gigantic, massive legs. And then above it was this tiny little person. And he's fine. But I took note of it because it was the physical equivalent of a non-fully integrated personality where one aspect is excessively developed and other aspects are completely ignored. This is very much a part of the challenge that our boss gives to each and every one of us. He's not looking for specialists other than in your professions. But in your life, he's looking for generalists, people for whom every aspect of their being is being worked on and improved and developed. In Hebrew, some of you will already know, it's called shleimut. Shleimut. And tell me what word you hear embedded in there. Sh-l-m. Shalom, it is. That's right. Shleimut means integrated personality. It's also the meaning of the word integrity, isn't it? When everything fits together. And an integrated personality is somebody who has shleimut. And the only way to have true shalom, the only way to have true tranquility of spirit, day to day, even in the quiet hours of the night, True tranquility comes from Shleimut, when you are integrated in all four areas. What are these critical four areas? Well, first of all, faith. 
our, we're integrated in our relationship with God. We understand that he's with us and watching us all the time. And a lot of us don't quite get that, do we? Because there are a lot of things we wouldn't dream of doing if our fathers were watching. But we go ahead and do it when our Father in heaven is watching. Did somebody say, ouch? That's, that's, that is even better than amen. That's exactly the right response. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's very disturbing. But we're talking about shleimut. That's faith. Another aspect, and this one surprises a lot of people because they think, oh, this has nothing to do with God. This has nothing to do with faith. This has nothing to do with a house of worship. This has nothing to do with studying God's word. But that's finances. Got to be integrated in our finances. And then our social connections. Our friendships, crucial. You've got to build your relationships with people. So we have integration of faith, of friendships, of finance, and finally of family. Those are these four areas. Where does that come from? Do I just pull that out of the air? Of course not. You all have busy lives. You'd be fools to sit here listening to anything I bother to pick out of the air. Because you're all just as good as I am at pulling things out of the air. But no. That is from an individual called Abraham. And we go back to that same verse you saw a few minutes ago. Chapter 12 verse 1. And God said to Abraham, move, move away from everything that is familiar to you. Your home, your land, your birthplace, your family. Move, move out of your comfort zone. Did Abraham say, where do you want me to go? No. Because long before the destination can be in sight... You've got to make the action of moving away from the familiar. Moving out of your comfort zone. Don't even talk to me about destination. We're not ready for that yet. We're still working on the moving out. And one of the great questions that is a part of ancient Jewish wisdom on these verses is why did God pick Abraham? Now, if I were to ask you, why did God pick Noah? You'd be able to answer that really easily because long before God spoke to Noah and told him to build an ark, it already tells us in the verses that he was an exceptionally righteous guy. He stood out in his generation. So why did God speak to him? Well, because he was an exceptionally righteous guy. Obviously, we knew that. Or later on in Exodus, uh, God speaks to Moses. Why? Well, because he has this extraordinary background of having been rescued by an Egyptian princess and having been brought up in the palace and nonetheless being sensitive to the pain of his people. That's something 
So you want to know why God chose Moses to speak to him? Because most of us who are given a life of luxury do not spare a thought for the pain of our people. Moses did. God spoke to him. But why did God speak to Abraham and say, get moving? Why? What did Abraham do up to this point? Absolutely nothing. So what's the answer? The answer is going to provoke another ouch. Are you ready? The answer is that God said that very loudly to everybody who was alive in that generation. God spoke to everybody. I didn't create you to sit in a cocoon of cotton wool, protected and comfortable. That's not why I created you. All of you now, get out of your comfort zone. Move. And only one person listened. That was Abraham. Can I hear an ouch? You see? That's the message all the time. And only a few actually hear it. And what does God say to Abraham? As soon as he is given this instruction and notices that Abraham immediately packs the Samsonite and puts on his roller skates, what is the next thing that God says? Chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 2. gadol. First of all, I'm going to give you the blessing of this relationship with me. Secondly, I'm going to give you the power of family. Because one of the things that people who are on a mission can sometimes neglect is their family. People who are trying to build a business. Sometimes even, even folks in ministry, right? And we know this. There are folks in ministry who are so dedicated that they lose the ability to integrate all of these four things and they neglect their own families. It happens. It's very, very dangerous, but it's easy. And God says, I will also make sure that financially you are going to succeed. And so God says these four things. After he says, get moving, and after Abraham starts moving, God now makes these four pronouncements. I'm going to take care of your family, your finances, and your friendships. You're going to have all of that as long as you keep your faith with me. An extraordinary thing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. The next thing is, right after that, <clears throat> we get the famous phrase, Va'avarecha mevarachecha umekalelecha aor. That's verse 3. So we've looked at verse 1, 2, and 3 from chapter 12. Here's what verse 3 means. I just said it in Hebrew. And 
I first want to tell you the way that a lot of people believe it reads and they're wrong. It's a very common mistake. You can take a bet on this and eat free for the next month. <laughs> because most people think that what I just read from 12.3 is, and I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. Isn't that what most people think? Not you, but most people out there think that. But I know you know it correctly. There are two mistakes in what I just said. I will bless those who bless you. That part is exactly right. I will curse those who curse you. It's not what it says. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Big difference. First of all, blessings emanate from God. Curses emanate from evil people. So it starts off and says, I will bless those who bless you because blessings come from God. But it couldn't possibly say, and I will curse. The, no, the curse starts off with a person. He who curses you, well, then I will curse. So be very careful of that. Do you see the difference? The other important difference is when I said it wrong, I said, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Well, we now know it doesn't say I will curse those. It's those who curse you, I will curse. But it's not the word those. It's singular. And he who curses you, I will curse. This is a very, very important prophecy. What God is telling us here is that at any given time, there's only going to be one enemy of Israel. Now, that's very important. It means that we have to re-examine all of world history in order to see just how this worked. Really? Only one enemy at a time? Well, that's what the verse says. There's only going to be one who curses you, and then I'll curse him. Well, a little while later, you'll pardon me uh, taking the time to actually have the words in front of me. Instead of just going on memory, it's because of all those people watching. No risks today, I tell you. Not when there are hundreds of thousands of people checking everything I'm going to say. It's the trouble, you know, when people are watching at home on their TVs or on their computers. They, it's like everywhere. You're only watching with half your attention. With your other attention, you're checking email, you're fact-checking on Google, all kinds of things. So I'm aware of you all there. And so... Uh, we're in, uh, we're now chapter 28, chapter 28, and it is verse 10. Let me read it to you in the English. It's not a bad translation. Jacob departed from Beersheba, and he traveled to Haran. As you become more and more accustomed to the nomenclatures and challenges of ancient Jewish wisdom, you probably already hear the question. And Jacob left Beersheba and journeyed to Haran. This, you will recall, was when he fled from his brother Esau. Chapter 28, verse 10. The question is, why tell us that he departed from Beersheba? He's been living in Beersheba most of his life. That's where he is. It could have just said, 
Jacob traveled to Haran. Obviously, you know, if, if, if somebody says, you know, tomorrow I'm departing Dallas and going to Israel, well, obviously, if you're in Dallas and you travel, you don't have to tell me that. You say what most people say, tomorrow I'm going to Israel. What's this business? And I'm departing Dallas. Oh, really? I thought maybe you were departing Timbuktu. Why? Well, you already know the answer because I told it to you just a few minutes ago. Before you can go anywhere, you have to leave where you are. And that's easier said than done. Because we all have a powerful attraction to the places we are, the places we feel comfortable, home base. We all feel good about that. And so it is impossible to travel physically or spiritually without first leaving that place. Again, that same idea of lech lecha, go. And so Jacob left Beersheba because he was on a holy mission. His parents had sent him to go to Haran. One of his purposes was to get married. Remember we spoke about integrated family. Got to be marriage. That's part of it. I always say to single men, you really need to get married because you are the most destructive people on the planet. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, you get married and you're in a happy marriage, that's great for you, I'm very happy for you, but my main concern in you being married is to make society safer for me. Yeah, single man. Anyway, at the end of this, the, the guy's usually shifting uncomfortably on his feet and looking at the carpet. And, uh, and then I say, so what's, well, you know, why not? You know, you're, you're 23 already. What's wrong? And um, he says, usually he said, just haven't found the right girl. To which my response, and I am sure it is absolutely true, you're wrong. The reason you haven't got married yet is not because you haven't found the right girl. It's because you're not yet the right man. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, I'm just looking for the right woman. You don't even deserve the right woman yet. If you think that the only obstacle to your marriage is that this idealized female angel hasn't shown up yet, then you're not ready to be married. So why don't you work on you rather than searching? So Jacob is on his way. Now don't forget, one of the things that's going to happen as we move along is Jacob is also going to be dealing with his finances. He's not only going to end up with one wife, he's going to end up with four wives and 12 sons and a whole lot of money as well. That's a critical part of being shalem, shlemut, complete, integrated. God appears to Jacob, directly following this, and basically says, don't worry about anything. It's all going to be good. Carry on. I'm with you. And the Midrash explains a form of ancient Jewish wisdom uh, written down uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, has a lot of the missing information that God taught Moses during the nights on Mount Sinai. 
during the daytime, he was writing the text. During the nighttime, God explained some of the missing pieces that are not in the text. And God always showed where in the text a Hebrew word or a Hebrew phrase provides the trap. Do you know how airplanes land on carriers? Well, we know how they take off, you know, huge steam catapults because there isn't enough runway on a, on a carrier for a plane to build up enough speed to get lift for takeoff. So they use an additional form of thrust. Trouble is that a plane needs, needs just as much runway to land as it needs to take off. So how do they get jets to land on a, a fighter, on, on a carrier? Uh, a tail hook. As the pilot is on final approach, he presses a button and a hook drops out of the tail of the plane and stretched across the deck of the carrier are steel cables attached to uh, uh, energy absorbing things like springs or things moving through water. It's, it's, it's a beautiful system. Uh, and what happens is he lands and with an incredible jerk, the, the hook catches the, the tail hook, the hook catches one of the cables and it doesn't come to an immediate standstill because that would kill the pilot. But with the spring built in, it makes sure that the airplane comes to a halt before it drops off the other edge of the carrier, when everything works smoothly at least. So that's how, that's what God built into the, the text of the Torah. Hooks. Wires that stretch across the text. And all we've got to do is make sure that we activate our tail hooks. And so each verse, each word, each letter provides a link to another part of the oral transmission, another part of ancient Jewish wisdom. And so right here, one of the tail hook snags is that Jacob says to God with, I mean, incredible audacity. Uh, and since he was uh, a Hebrew, uh, I think we can say he had terrible chutzpah. <laughs> and Jacob says to God, Lord, it's, it's very nice you're promising me that everything's going to be okay. But I don't know if you've realized, I'm fleeing right now from a guy who has become a very powerful individual. That's my brother Esau. And God says, don't worry, I've got your back. That's covered. Jacob says, hold on, Lord, I haven't finished speaking. Because if I'm going to use a little chutzpah, I'll use a lot of it. You see, there's another problem, God. And that is that Esau has a son called Eliphaz. And Eliphaz has a son called Amalek. Genesis chapter 36, verse and 12. Asav, Esau, Jacob's brother, solemnly charged his grandson Amalek and told him, no matter what happens into the future, you and your descendants must always be devoted and dedicated above all else to the destruction of Israel. And that is the reason why Amalek can always be recognized 
And there are a number of uh, recognition characteristics. But one of the most important is that Amalek is always willing to die for his cause, which is the destruction of Israel. Amalek does not operate on the normal principles of self-interest. Right? Normally, if one nation decides to invade another nation and things start going really badly, and you, what do you do? It's called strategic retreat. And in May 1940, the British Third Army in Europe was trapped in a Belgian port city called Dunkirk. There are movies about it which are not very accurate, but you get the basic idea. And um, through an amazing, phenomenal thing, the people of England, everyone who had a boat, from a rowboat to a yacht, everybody crossed the 20 miles of the channel and picked up as many soldiers as they could manage. All the equipment, trucks, guns, everything was left on the beaches of Dunkirk. But 300,000 British soldiers came home and formed the core of the army that was later, many years later, was going to win the war. And Winston Churchill, that great leader, Winston Churchill said to the British people through his speech to the House of Commons, to the Parliament, he said, we thank God for the delivery of Dunkirk, but at the same time I have to tell you, wars are not won by retreat. And make no mistake about it, that was a retreat. But it was a strategic retreat. When you are engaged in a battle and the third army is outnumbered by the Nazi forces, they are going to be annihilated. You retreat, right? But not if you're Amalek. If you're Amalek, you die trying. Now, there's no mitzvah in the Torah. God doesn't command us to die for our military causes. We do our best because there are several types of wars. One type of war in the Torah is a war of commandment where God says, go and make war. That sort of war, no choice. You, go and you keep going. But there are other wars where a nation decides to make a war for economic reasons or for whatever other reasons it has. People do that. In that situation, we don't have the idea of die trying. Make the other guy die is what you're trying to do. But Amalek is different. An example of Amalek, a very good example of Amalek, is Haman in the book of Esther. And um, his lineage, if you actually look at the, uh, at the verses where he's introduced in the book of Esther, you will find that it says, Haman, Haman, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of Agag. And Agag was the king of the Amalekites whom the prophet Samuel told King Saul to wipe out because there is a commandment on all of us to wipe out Amalek. And so who is Amalek? In every generation and in every historical epoch, Amalek is someone else. It's not a biological nation. 
It's a spiritual nation. And so in the middle of the 20th century, there was no question about who was Amalek. No question. Nazi ideology matched all the Torah characteristics of Amalek all the way. Even to the point of dying trying. So important is it to wipe out the Jews that nothing can stand in the way and even your life isn't a reason enough. This is why it was that the uh, the history books of the Third Reich, like William Shearer and, um, and also um, the architect of the Third Reich, write how at a certain point, you may remember, Germany decides to invade Russia. It was the 22nd of June, 1941. And they ran into a problem, which I'll tell you about in a moment. But the problem they ran into was that they did not succeed in conquering Stalingrad. What's the smart thing to do? Bearing in mind that there's such a thing called the, the Russian winter, for which the German soldiers were totally unprepared. The smart thing you do, it's what the Israelis would do, it's what America would do. Hey guys, we miscalculated. We got to pull back, regroup, and try again at the end of the winter. What does Amalek do? Hitler's direct orders prohibits any retreat, even though they're all going to be wiped out by a combination of Russians fighting for their lives and their biggest ally. You know who that is? Not America. America's not in the war yet for another six months. The winter. And this is the first defeat that the Germans have in World War II. Over a million Wehrmacht soldiers die horribly. Only a small number of them die from Russian bullets. Majority of them freeze to death. Why don't you go home? Stay warm, build up your strength and come back. No, not if you're Amalek. Haman, all the way to the end, even when it's obvious that the king's feelings have tilted in favor of the Jews and that Haman's plan to exterminate the Jews was not going to work, this is a good time to bail out and tell everybody they misunderstood you. Does Haman do that? Goes all the way to the end, determined. Doesn't killing Jews is the most important thing. At the time, the Russian, the German soldiers were dying in uh, the outskirts of Stalingrad. They sent urgent messages, and Wehrmacht officers listened to this. They went into Adolf Hitler's headquarters, and they said, "We need you to sign this order. This order releases forty to 60,000 SS officers who are engaged in killing Jews in Auschwitz and the other death camps. These are comfortable, warm, well-fed guys. You need to release them and you need to take all the trains, all the rolling stock that has been used to transport Jews to the death camps from the furthest corners of Europe. Take those trains and those forty to 60,000 SS officers 
get them all to the Eastern Front. The trains can bring fuel and food and new uniforms. The men will take over the fighting from exhausted, freezing people. And Hitler flew into, flew into a rage. He's Amalek, of course. And he said, you idiots. You don't even understand what this whole war is about. It's only about killing Jews. I don't care about Stalingrad. But never any retreat. That's what happened. So, that's Amalek. You'll remember Jacob's chutzpah. He's speaking to God and he's saying, hey, it's all very nice you say you got my back. But in this real world I have to function in, I've got my brother Esau who hates me. And his grandson Amalek is devoting his entire life to the end of days to trying to destroy me. It's, how am I supposed to manage? And God says to him, don't you remember the blessing I gave to your grandfather Abraham? I told him there would only be one enemy at a time. And Jacob said, so what are you saying? And God said, only one enemy at a time. Now Esau, if we look at the first chapter of the book of Ovadia, Obadiah, we find that Esau is related to the north. Esau always attacks from his place in the north. Now there's only one major city that is on 36 degrees, excuse me, there are only two major cities that are on the longitude, the parallel of longitude of 36 degrees east, Moscow and Jerusalem. In the north is Moscow, in the south is Jerusalem. Not only that, but Esau was born what color? Remember what we called the Soviets? The Reds. Ever noticed what the flag was of Russia? Red. Yeah, exactly. Esau comes to life in the 20th century through Russia. Amalek comes alive during the 20th century through? I've told you, Hitler and Germany. That's who they were. And God says, you don't have to worry because even if you think you've got two enemies, at a critical moment, I will set them at one another's throats. And here is the most eerie thing of all. Written in the Hebrew words of the Midrash, it says, Vehi Barbarossa, and that will be Barbarossa. Now, the amazing thing is that our great-grandparents living before 1940 would have known nothing about what that word could possibly mean. But what we all know is something that should make the hairs on the back of your neck stand right up. Hitler arranged a non-aggression pact with Russia in 1939, a few months before the outbreak of war. The reason was Hitler knew that he had to deal with England first, right? And he didn't want the risk of a two-front war and so he had to placate the Russians. So uh, the German von Ribbentrop and the Russian Molotov, the two foreign uh, secretaries, uh, met and they hammered out the Molotov von Ribbentrop non-aggression pact in August or, or, or July 1939. 
And the agreement was that for at least 10 years, Russia and Germany will never fight with one another. So now, Stalin loved that idea because his army just wasn't ready for any fun and games anyways. And so he accepted that. And what happened with uh, Germany? Germany now doesn't have to worry about Russia starting up with them on the east while they're dealing with France and uh, England in the west. I told you May 1940 was the biggest military disaster that England had had in the, in the, in the young war that, that, that was being fought. Uh, they lose the entire Third Army's uh, material, the men get rescued, and everything has to be rebuilt from scratch. England is basically on its knees. America doesn't come into the war until the end of 1941. So what is the next thing for Hitler to do? Obviously, invade England. And in fact, we know that huge numbers of ships and barges were being prepared on the ports on the English Channel to ferry the uh, German army over to the beaches of England. And that was when Hitler gave his speech, we will fight them on the beach, excuse me, when Winston Churchill gave his famous speech, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them on the, on the roads, we will never surrender. Because they were expecting Hitler to do the obvious logical thing. To this day, nobody knows what got into Hitler's head. In a way that baffles the historians to the present day, nobody can explain why Hitler did the most unbelievably stupid thing. That is, instead of finishing off England, he turns around and attacks Russia in June 1941. It's madness. But here's the part. Remember, I promised you your hairs get ready for those hairs. What did Hitler name the military campaign? Operation Barbarossa. That's what 2,000 years ago God told Jacob and said, I will set your two enemies against each other so you'll never have to deal with two at a time and that'll be Barbarossa. And so when Jews and knowledgeable, Torah-knowledgeable Jews learnt about the invasion of Russia and they heard what it was called, they said, God is making good on his promise. Imagine if Stalin with his blind hatred of Jews and Hitler with his insane malice towards Jews, imagine they all got together and stayed friends. It all would have been over. But that's not what happened. Barbarossa is what happened. Extraordinary thing. And what happened? Well, in 1941... A man called the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Amin, Amin al-Husseini, did a journey to Germany where the people he sat down with was Adolf Hitler and von Ribbentrop. Do you know what was really going on there? Handing over the mantle of Amalek from Germany to the 21st century's Amalekites. Not the Arabs, the Muslims. It's very different. That's just something we have to understand. 
I want you to remember, and you can take a look at this when you go back. Those of you at home, you're obviously going to be doing it right now. And that is, um, take a look when Abraham dies and his funeral occurs. Who takes him to the funeral? Who buries Abraham? Well, it says Isaac and Ishmael. Now, Ishmael is the father of the Arab people. So, again, if you look at the Hebrew text, it's clear that there's a little bit of a pause. There's some, there's some discussion going on between the two boys. And sure enough, Ishmael says to Isaac, you must precede me because you are the blessed son. We're both going to the funeral, but you have to be up front. And Isaac said to Ishmael, not at all. You have to be up front because you are the oldest son. And the two of them argue about who is the more proper person to take the place of honor at father's funeral. They finally settle it, it's going to be Isaac. Would you have thought that Ishmael would take this opportunity of sticking a knife into Isaac's ribs? Isaac's walking in front. You'd, you'd think Isaac would say, <laughs> I'm not walking ahead of you. You're going to go in front. Let's say it's because you're older, but the real reason is you're not getting behind me. No, Isaac wasn't in the least bit worried. Do you know why he wasn't worried? Because what was the age difference between them? Do you remember? 13 years. Way back they used to play together. And in fact, they used to play together, worried Sarah, not physically, but spiritually. But how about physically? Wouldn't you have thought a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old takes a two-year-old uh, and he says to Aaron, uh, I'm going to take little Isaac down to the old swimming hole. <laughs> and then an hour later, he comes back alone. He says, oh, there was a terrible accident. Yeah, the accident was you held his head underwater is what happened. But it never happened. And Sarah was never worried that that was going to happen. There is not a state of implacable hatred between Arabs and Jews. There's a state of implacable hatred between something called Islam and the Jews. And it's not native to the Arab people. Uh, I don't want to draw conclusions from my own personal experiences, but there may be others of you who have had this as well. Uh, I have been several times in three Gulf states. Uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and Qatar. And my head is covered. I, I, I go through passport control. It, it, my, my passport is full of visas from Israel. This, this is not a mystery as to who I am. Never anything but complete courtesy. Now, this is very different from going into the East Bank. Very different. In, um, in the East Bank, they haven't figured out how to build a bicycle factory yet, let alone a chip fabrication plant. But Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Qatar are thriving economically. It's a very different situation. Where Islam is at its most fervent, there's darkness, barbarism, and hatred. And where Islam takes second place to business, it's much quieter. And that's why I'm sure you know, you've probably heard through similar sources as I have, that there are actually agreements 
secret agreements between some of the Gulf states and Israel. Don't for one moment think that President Trump, who says funny things but does amazing things, don't for a moment think that President Trump didn't discuss the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem with the Gulf states. And that's why people who said, oh, and many, unfortunately, many secularized Jews said, oh, there's going to be war on the streets of the Arabian capitals. They're all going to, you must not move the capital, the embassy to Jerusalem. The Jews said this. And wiser heads knew there was nothing to worry about. There was not going to be any problem at all on the Arab street because the main money sources, the Gulf states, had already signed off on it. Nothing to worry about. It's a different situation. And so, um, do we have a slide available? If we do, it would be great. I'll be able to show you something as we sort of start moving in for a landing here. Uh, okay, th this is great. Oh, fabulous. Okay, uh, as probably everybody knows, the Torah is actually a long data stream. It's a long data stream of a little over 300,000 letters, the five books of Moses. The word breaks that we know when we read the Hebrew is only one possible solution to word breaks. The word breaks can be in many other places with totally deeper meanings. And so I just wanted to show you an example of that. Again, the likelihood, for those of you who are into the mathematics, use the Poisson distribution theorem in order to calculate the improbability of this happening by coincidence because, Pastor Larry says, there is no word in Hebrew for coincidence. Here it is. In the data stream of the Torah, of all those 300,000 plus letters, there are only three places where the letters that make up Ishmael's name, there you see them on the right, Yud, Shin, Mem, Ayin, Aleph, Lamed. Those six letters, reading from right to left, appear in sequence even though there are word breaks. You follow what I'm saying? So now take a look. Underneath, it's Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, verse 12, and you'll see the bold section. And you should be able to see the word Yishmael very clearly there. You got it? In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Lo Yishmael. Did you see it again? Third time, the only three places. Again, the word Yishmael showing up. Not, not the bolded first two. It's just, you can see four and two at the bottom underlined, the underlined section. Here's the amazing coincidence. Or you say that every one of those, let me translate them, the top one, and the man that will not, uh, and the man who will behave uh, in, in deliberate violation. The next one, and the, it'll be that the man who will not listen to the words of the priest. Third one, and he who will not listen to the voice of his father and the voice of his mother, and he'll turn away from the teachings of his parents, and there's Yishmael. What do you say to the fact that the only three places in the Torah where the word Yishmael shows up are three places that talk about violating authority? Okay, that's a very real thing. 
And so we understand what's going on here. Yes, the Arab people can be at peace with Israel. Islam, never. And so the hope for the future is the erosion of Islam. There's somebody uh, in the, the uh, house of worship right now who made arrangements on Friday for me to broadcast a Judeo-Christian Torah message to people in Iran. And it appealed to me very much because I do believe that the future of a sane, tranquil world of following God's will for humanity is when a billion Muslims become Christian. And so, as we wrap things up, and I'm sorry, have I, have I gone over time? Okay, we'll wrap up over the next couple of minutes. And um, we see that God's word is not a history book about things that happened to long forgotten people back in the dawn of history. No. It is a roadmap to the present. It is a computer model of everything that is going on with us. And by using that, we are able to make our slogan the words of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 4. In Hebrew, Va'atem hadveikim badonai Eloheichem chayim kulchem hayom. Deuteronomy 4, 4, chapter 4, verse 4. And all of you who cleave and cling to the Lord your God, guess what? You're still alive. You're all here today. Those are the words. How true is that? And so here we've got a roadmap, not only to human history, not only a picture of how things are going to unfold as God moves the world closer to his vision. Not only do we understand the relationship between Jew and Gentile, not only do we understand the relationship between Israel and the nations, all of that is clear, but we also understand what each and every one of us have to do. Shlemut. We've all got to achieve the shalem the integrity, the structure within us. And we've got to be able to do that with faith. Well, here we are. We're taking care of that. Thank you, Pastor. And then we've got to take care of family. Now, family is rooted in marriage. Well, what is the finest textbook on marriage? The ultimate textbook on male-female relationships. Scripture. God's message particularly the first few chapters of Genesis, but it's not only there. It's not only there at all. We can go to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5, and learn something very powerful, very important. And this may be relevant to, to many people here today, but if it isn't now, it'll be down the road. The question is, when do you start educating your child? How old should the child be before you start 
the child's serious education, having to do with understanding how the world really works. When you, what age are you supposed to do that? Anyone know? Two years old? Four? How about 13 years old? You think that's a good time to start? If you think that, you've already lost. If that's the first time your child ever hears the phrase, thou shalt not, it's far too late. No, the, the point at which you begin the education of your child is those moments while you and your spouse are conceiving that child. And uh, we actually learn from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5, where it speaks about marriage. And it doesn't say husband and wife should share joy together. It says very explicitly, and by the way, I've seen some wrong translations on this, but the Hebrew of 24, 5 in Deuteronomy is very clear. And the husband should bring ecstasy and joy to his wife. That's not animalistic at all. That's not how animals do it. Here, it's the male being more concerned with his spouse than he is about himself. Can you think of a better lesson for parents? To learn that doing something for others, helping others, making others happy is the source of the ultimate pleasure. That's just one of an entire book of marriage lessons because we are not shalem. We don't have shalom. We don't have the tranquility of integrity if we don't have our marriage and family tidied up. And our friendships, how about our friendships? Well, there are two Hebrew words used for friend. One is yedid and the other one is chaver. And the one that is yedid is made up, and I think I've shared this with you here in years gone by, the, the word for friend made up of Yedid are the two, is the one Hebrew word for friend repeated. I'm sorry, forgive me. Take that back, rewind. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for friend, Yedid, is spelled hand-hand. Yeah, you, I know you know that, yeah. Hand-hand. Why? Because the universal symbol of friendship are two clasped hands. And the additional idea is that friends achieve genuine friendship when they put their hands together to achieve a common end. That's where friendship grows. And so God's message is build relationships with people through doing things together with them whether it's studying Bible or whether it's doing things or even building a business. Don't do business with your friends. That's always risky. But make those with whom you do business your friends. And the second word for friend is chaver. It's made up of the Hebrew word obligation. Uh, you remember there was a very stupid movie many years ago that uh, had a famous phrase that everyone walked around clucking like ducks. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Love actually means never doing anything for which you do have to say sorry. 
And friendship, friendship is developed when you do become obligated to another person. Friendship isn't just a state of mutual freedom. Friendship means I feel an obligation for you. That's the key. So we use Bible messages to understand how to develop marriage, understand how to develop friendships, our faith we're busy with, and to understand our finances. That is an entire topic on its own. We've done programs here in the past where we focused on that. The Torah gives us a vision of how the world works, how history unfolds and God's prophecies become revealed. And at the same time, it goes down to the micro level, each and every one of us. How do we develop that integrity? How do we develop the shleimut, the completion, so we don't look like a misshapen Tour de France bicycle rider, so that all parts of us are developed equally, our families, our friendships, our finances, and our relationship with the boss. All of those things come together. And when we do all that, my friends, we will truly be able to say every single day, because of our association with one another here at New Beginnings and with Pastor Larry and Pastor Tiz, let's always just say, Deuteronomy 4.4, V'atem hadveikim barunai Eloheichem, chayim kulchem hayom, and all of you, who cleave to the Lord your God, guess what? You're alive and you're here today. Amen. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Rabbi. Would you give Rabbi a great big hand of... Thank you. <coughs> I want to close with this, these remarks. Um, I love reading rabbis. I have everything rabbis written. I have the, the only things I listen to in teaching and when I'm driving is rabbi. And I really, in one way, hate telling you that because you're going to find out where I get all my knowledge. <laughs> Because when I get up, I say, God showed me something. It was just God through rabbi. Yeah. But I really encourage you. Don't you love how he explained Germany, Russia? Okay. That was it. That was my speech from last Sunday in Texas. And I very much hope that you enjoyed it. Um and by the way, uh, I'd really appreciate a little bit of feedback as well at the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, let me know because, uh, again, I, I can easily be discouraged from doing this again uh, or encouraged. Uh, if I were to do it again, it's obviously not something I would do very frequently. Um, some of the speeches that I do are uh, proprietary. In other words, uh, they are specifically for a certain corporation uh, or a uh, an organization, and in that sense, they, they are not uh, public. I, I don't have the freedom to share them, but uh, this one I did, and uh, from time to time, there are others that I can share. So anyways, uh, at rabbidaniellappin.com, why don't you let me know how you feel about it? Uh, also, 
uh, you, you probably know, on Facebook, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, um, and on various other social media, you find me as well, but um, mainly the website. Also at the website, you'll see that uh, we have the, um, the, uh, the library packs uh, available at a special price for listeners, uh, but just for a few more days. So if you are listening to this beyond the end of September 2018, um, I'm afraid that doesn't apply to you anymore, but there are other things that do, so no problem there. Uh, Those of you who uh, uh, would like to join me at my next uh, speech, that would be in Las Vegas, uh, October the 14th, 2018, Uh, That's Sunday morning in Las Vegas, and um, that is at a Wealth Summit conference. The the way to get tickets for that is to go to um, wealthsummit.net. Okay, Uh, on the internet, just go to wealthsummit.net, and you'll be able to get tickets for October the fourteenth. And I hope to see as many of you there as possible. Love the opportunity of meeting you. And by the way, those of you who were with me at the speech in Texas last Sunday. Uh, those of you who came up and told me you, you're listeners and, uh, and, and hear me, I, I really get a kick out of meeting listeners and chatting with you, as I did last Sunday. So thank you, those of you who took the time to stop by and have me sign your books and uh, tell me that you do hear the show. Uh, I also uh, love hearing from people who listen to the show from far away. It's one of the benefits of this kind of a show that uh, people in many different countries around the world listen to the show. So let me know about that because uh, I am trying to create a map, uh, you know, one of those maps with pins where where we know we have uh, people listening to the show. Well, we're trying to do that. So uh, those of you who've already let me know via emails and uh, other notifications, Thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's as far as we go for today. Appreciate you very much indeed and uh, and happy that you get a chance to listen to the show and that I get a chance to share it with you. Uh, for those of you celebrating the uh, biblical holiday of uh, Sukkot, of Tabernacles, starting, um, I mean, starting Sunday night, uh, September the 23rd, 2018, a very happy holidays to you and uh, to everybody. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, I wish you good times in your faith, in your finances, in your friendships, and in your family. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.